Nicholas, who wanted to counteract the influence of liberal democracy in Europe, came up with the slogan, Orthodoxy, Autocracy, Nationalism. That might just as well stand for Putin's ideology. This is a war backed by the Orthodox Church. He is an autocrat. He sees himself as a bulwark against liberal principles coming from the West. These were the words of Orlando Fages, a British historian who was making a parallel comparison between Tsar Nicholas I of Russia and Russia's current dictator, Vladimir Putin. According to Greg Meyer's WBUR.org article titled, How Russia's Current War in Ukraine Echoes Its Crimean War of the 1850s. The mindset governing Putin's recent brazen invasion of Ukraine shares quite a bit of similarities with the ideology that Nicholas I held during the Crimean War generations ago, indicating that the Russian government's strategic prerogatives really have not changed that much over the past few centuries. However, if the echoes of history are any reliable indicator, Putin's invasion of Ukraine will likely leave him in the same exact place that the Crimean War left Nicholas I in, alone and defeated. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Wars are some of the most influential agents of change in world history. They can lead to the creation of entire nations or lead to the dissolution of nations just as easily. However, in all of world history, there is one war that seems to have not received the recognition that it warrants for shifting the balance of power for generations to come. This war is none other than the Crimean War. The global impact of the Crimean War was one of immense change. It shifted the balance of power in Europe, leading to a new world order. It led to westernization of Turkish society. It uprooted ethnic and religious groups in the Black Sea Rim and incited transmigration and ethnic cleansing. It replaced traditional vast empires with nation-states. It introduced modern warfare by way of new military technologies. And it exposed the public to the horrors of war and the sacrifices of the common men who fight. The Crimean War changed the world and lay the groundwork for the development of the modern world. Many of the change agents established by the Crimean War actually took place towards the end of the conflict and during the Peace Congress that cemented the repercussions of the Crimean War. Ultimately, the importance of the Crimean War lies in its role in developing shifting power dynamics around the world, leading to the development of modern warfare and drastically changing the ethnic makeup in the societies involved in morally bankrupt ways, such as ethnic cleansing. One of the most notable and significant of the consequences of the Crimean War was the new world order that was developed through the shifting power dynamics that it left in its wake. France was one of the countries that was most significantly elevated due to the Crimean War. In the book, The Crimean War, the author, Orlando Fages indicates how Paris was chosen to be the location at which the Peace Congress would take place. This was emblematic of the larger transition of France into a position of incredible power. Even at the time that this transition was taking place, individuals living at the time realized that France was rapidly gaining in prominence. Count Walwuski, for instance, 
claimed that France had earned the, quote, first place, end quote, in Europe following its involvement in the Crimean War. Napoleon III, the leader of France at the time, was very pleased with the large role that France played in the Peace Congress, during which, according to Figes, quote, he had emerged as the key player on whom all the other powers depended for the satisfaction of their interests. I am struck by the general deference to Emperor Napoleon, wrote Princess Levin to Baroness Meyendorf on 9 November. This war has carried him pretty high, end quote. The fact that Napoleon III was able to command such influence during the Peace Congress was quite a considerable shift in power for France. France essentially using the Peace Congress and its success in the Crimean War to become one of, if not the most, powerful and influential European countries marked a dynamic shift in the power dynamics of the world at the time. On the opposite end of the spectrum, following the conclusion of the Crimean War, Russia was left to grapple with its rather surprising defeat. Russian citizens, as indicated in Andrew Lambert's BBC article titled The Crimean War, were left with the disappointing realization that Russia was no longer capable of commanding the same presence and power that France was suddenly able to. Clearly, the power dynamics of Europe shifted to Russia's detriment after the Crimean War. However, this also provided Russia with the incentive to better itself in order to ensure that it could redeem itself on the world stage following this embarrassing defeat. Lambert elaborates on this idea, describing how, quote, the shock of defeat forced Russia to adopt a program of sweeping internal reforms and industrialization under Tsar Alexander II, who came to throne in early 1855, quote. In a certain sense, even though Russia was certainly demoted on the world stage due to the Crimean War, this conflict did provide the necessary groundwork that Russia needed to elevate itself for the next era of world history. Russia's failure in the Crimean War encouraged it to improve itself by implementing various policies to promote industrialization, which arguably eventually contributed to its success in future conflicts such as World War II. By thoroughly embarrassing Russia, the Crimean War gave Russia the quintessential motivation needed for it to better itself to ensure that such embarrassments would never again befall Russia. The Crimean War took the ambitious Russian Empire and humiliated it, thereby giving it the incentive that it ultimately needed to reinvent itself and eventually emerge as one of the single most powerful and important nations in the world. One last notable shift in power that took place as a result of the Crimean War that is worth mentioning is the ways in which the Ottoman Empire lost some of its autonomy in the Crimean War. In an academic journal written by Uzger Yildiz, titled An Overview on Crimean War 1853-1856, it is explained that, quote, the Ottomans won the Crimean War with the help of its allies. This help was not unconditional. The Ottoman state signed the Treaty of Paris at the end of the war. Most tragically, the Ottoman state took its first foreign debt during this war and fell into the hands of the colonialist states. End quote. 
As a result of the Crimean War, the Ottoman Empire lost a great deal of its own independence. Colonialist states began to take control of the Ottoman Empire and largely exploited it for their own gain. Ultimately, the Ottoman Empire was one of a plethora of societies that were dramatically changed as a result of their involvement in the Crimean War. Additionally, the Crimean War directly ushered in a brand new era for warfare and military technologies. For example, in Steve Drummond's NPR article titled, From Weapons to Fashion, Crimea's Indelible Mark on History, it is indicated how the Crimean War really laid the foundations for the modern warfare that people all over the world have come to expect from wars nowadays. Drummond articulates how, in the Crimean War, Quote, among the battlefield advances tested on the Black Sea coast were use of the telegraph, railroads to transport large quantities of troops and supplies, and the conical mini-ball, which replaced round bullets in infantry weapons, thus increasing their range and accuracy. This development would have a devastating effect a decade later in places like Antietam and Gettysburg. End quote. This improved transportation, communication, and weaponry, as alluded to by Drummond, would play a very important role in the American Civil War. However, although they may be more well-known for their roles in the American Civil War, historians ought not to forget that many of the militaristic uses of telegraphs, railroads, and miniballs actually first emerged during the Crimean War. The use of railroads and miniballs would make warfare significantly more intense and gruesome. The miniballs improved the effectiveness of soldiers killing their enemies, and the use of railroads would enable increasingly more troops to be transported from one area engulfed in conflict to another at a much swifter rate, thereby potentially increasing the number of individuals that could be in a certain conflict at a given period of time. Without the Crimean War, it is entirely plausible that the Battle of Antietam and the Battle of Gettysburg may not have been so devastating and not involve such horrific losses of life. In a primary source document that was written in November of 1854 during the Crimean War, the letter from Captain Colin Campbell to his acquaintance Francis Russell is transcribed. In this letter by Campbell, he illustrates how, quote, the state of the trenches in rainy weather surpasses all description. The thick, sticky mud is nearly a foot deep, and in it the men have to lie, as the sight of their heads above the parapet in daytime would be the signal for a shower of shot and shell. We are losing four or five a day by what is put down in the returns as cholera, but is nothing but cramps brought on by lying in the wet. And cold. End quote. Through Campbell's first hand account of the Crimean War, it becomes rather clear that the Crimean War really did mark the turning point in world history from outdated battle tactics and strategies to modern warfare. This transition into the era of modern warfare is readily apparent in Campbell's account of trenches. Trench warfare would become much more well known during World War I, but this primary source practically asks its modern readers to consider whether the devastating and disastrous trench warfare of World War I would have even been so prevalent had it not been for the Crimean War. 
the trench warfare that led to so many brave individuals losing their lives in World War I can actually be traced back to the Crimean War. Furthermore, in Crispin Andrews' engineering and technology article titled Crimea, the First Modern War, he explains that, quote, for the first time in Crimea, military forces used mass-produced rifles, exploding shells, sea mines, and armored coastal assault vessels with long-range cannons. In two and a half years, over a million Russians died, while the British lost 25,000." The Crimean War led to almost unprecedented new developments in efficient killing machines. Without the Crimean War, countless wars to come may not have had such extravagant displays of blood and death. Without the Crimean War, perhaps soldiers in the world wars would not have used mass-produced rifles. Without the Crimean War, perhaps soldiers in many of the more recent wars would have not utilized armored coastal assault vessels with long-range cannons to maximize the number of casualties that they could inflict upon their rivals. Without the Crimean War, maybe, just maybe, thousands of lives could have been spared from the carnage of war. The Crimean War redefined what war meant in the modern era and transformed societies to accommodate for the more brutal tactics and weaponry being introduced to the battlefield. Finally, the Crimean War was incredibly impactful due to its role in the spread of war crimes and the uprooting of religious and ethnic groups wherever the battles of the Crimean War were fought leading to mass transmigration and ethnic cleansing. One primary source document relating to the Crimean War that can be accessed through the A Peep into Finnish War History with Gale Primary Sources article that was devised by the Gale Ambassadors in the Gale Review details the happenings of the Hango Massacre. In this primary source document, which was officially known as the Monument to the Victims of the Hango Massacre, the British writers of this document detail, quote, the Hango Massacre, an act which will remain a stigma on the shield of Russia as long as Russia bears a shield, which will be a blot on her honor as long as she has any honor to blot, end quote. The Hango Massacre, which these British writers claimed was so incredibly devastating to the image of Russia, involved Russian forces firing upon ships, carrying British seamen, and captured Finnish individuals. Even though the British seamen were being peaceful, and even though the Finnish individuals were not even officially involved in the Crimean War, the Russian forces still did not hesitate to fire upon these people. This group of Finnish people was essentially subjected to a heinous war crime by Russia during the Crimean War. As the British writers of this primary source document indicated, this Hango massacre would live on in infamy as a horrendous example of the ways in which peaceful third parties were targeted and shrewdly eliminated. Unfortunately, this was not the only morally bankrupt action that Russia committed in conjunction with the Crimean War. Phygis illustrates in his book how, quote, 
the Tartar population had largely disappeared. There had already been reprisals for the atrocities at Kerch with mass arrests, confiscations of property, and summary executions of suspicious Tartars by the Russian military. End quote. Wars oftentimes serve as backdrops for some of the most horrific atrocities in history. In actions that somewhat mirrored the Armenian genocide of World War I, Russia seemingly exploited the Crimean War in order to persecute the Tartar population. Gradually, as indicated by Phyges, the Tartar population started to vanish. This terrifying event serves as an unsettling reminder of some of the most long-lasting impacts of the Crimean War. Furthermore, Phyges goes on to elaborate on some of the other morally corrupt actions undertaken by Russia during the Crimean War. In one such instance, Phyges explains the significant transmigration that took place during the Crimean War, articulating how, quote, larger numbers of Circassians, Abkhazians, and other Muslim tribes were forced out of their homelands by the Russians, who, after the Crimean War, stepped up their military campaign against Shamil, engaging in a concerted policy of what would today be defined as ethnic cleansing to Christianize the Caucasus. End quote. If the Hango massacre was not brutal and malicious enough to smear the reputation of Russia for generations to come, this ethnic cleansing certainly was. The fact that Russia's defeat in the Crimean War seemingly encouraged the nation to engage in this systematic ethnic cleansing is one of the most destructive and significant implications of the Crimean War. For so many members of minority communities to be displaced and or killed at an alarmingly rapid rate is very disconcerting. Unfortunately, though, it was just one of the several notable immoral offenses committed by Russia under the pretext of the Crimean War. The Crimean War marked a turning point in human history, the beginning of a transition into the modern era. It shifted the balance of power in the world, leading to the development of a much more familiar world that more closely resembled that of the modern era. It uprooted ethnic and religious groups in the Black Sea Rim and incited transmigration, war crimes, and ethnic cleansing. It introduced modern warfare by way of new military technologies. In short, the Crimean War undoubtedly changed the world and laid the foundations out for the development of the modern world. Ultimately, the importance of the Crimean War lies in its role in developing shifting power dynamics around the world, leading to the development of modern warfare and drastically changing the ethnic makeup in the societies involved in morally dubious manners. Now that I have established the importance of the Crimean War in world history, the comparisons between the Crimean War and Putin's current invasion of Ukraine can be explored. Throughout Season 2 of Politics with Paxton, I have explored many of the injustices present within the criminal justice system, including some influential individuals whose crimes went unpunished, while many others went to prison for committing much more minor offenses. In that theme of criminality, it is important to note that 
as Dominic Kashani illustrates in the BBC article titled, What is a War Crime and Could Putin Be Prosecuted Over Ukraine? Putin and most of his subordinates are war criminals, many of whom have thus far escaped repercussions for their despicable actions. According to Kashani, in the first war crimes trial since the invasion of Ukraine commenced, quote, the 21-year-old Russian tank commander Vadim Shishimarin admitted shooting 62-year-old Alexander Shelepov in the head a few days after the invasion began. Sentencing Shishimarin, the judge said he had committed a crime against peace, security, humanity, and the international legal order, and that only a life sentence was appropriate, end quote. Unfortunately, the war crime committed by Vadim Shishimarin was just the beginning of the war crimes that the Russian government would carry out in its invasion of Ukraine. As is recounted by Kashani, quote, Ukraine's Prosecutor General, Irina Venediktova, says her office has started 80 prosecutions against Russian soldiers for offenses including killing civilians, rape, bombing civilian infrastructure, and looting, and identified 600 suspects. She is receiving reports of 200 to 300 war crimes every day, she adds. U.S. President Joe Biden and outgoing U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson have both accused Russia of carrying out war crimes in Ukraine. Investigators and journalists found what appeared to be evidence of deliberate killing of civilians in Buka, a town on the outskirts of Kiev and other nearby areas. Ukrainian forces said they found mass graves and evidence that civilians have been killed after their feet and hands were bound. In March, a Russian strike on a theater in Mariupol appeared to be the first confirmed location of a mass killing. The word children was written in giant letters outside the building. Ukraine previously called Russia's airstrike on Mariupol's hospital a war crime. Many experts argued the invasion itself is a crime under the concept of aggressive warfare. End quote. Clearly, Putin's government has been responsible for a number of heinous war crimes since the invasion of Ukraine began. Thankfully, Putin's status as an insidious war criminal has been publicly recognized by a variety of prominent world leaders. As is stated in Dan Mangan's CNBC article titled, Biden calls to put Putin on trial for war crimes over Russia killings in Ukraine, quote, President Joe Biden on Monday called for evidence to be gathered to put Russian leader Vladimir Putin on trial for war crimes related to his nation's invasion of Ukraine. He is a war criminal, Biden said of Putin, on the heels of reports of mass killings of civilians by Russian-controlled troops in the town of Buka, northwest of Ukraine's capital of Kiev. This guy is brutal, and what's happening in Buka is outrageous, and everyone's seen it, Biden told reporters a day after video and still images revealed the town's streets littered with dead bodies. I think it is a war crime. He should be held accountable. Biden also said he plans to slap additional sanctions on Russia for its conduct during the war, which began with an invasion on February 24, end quote. 
Mangan goes on to detail how United States President Joe Biden maintained and reaffirmed his important and valid stance that Putin is a war criminal, despite apparently getting criticized for doing so. Despite the important and necessary step that Biden and several other world leaders took in denouncing Putin as a war criminal, they are still going to have to find a way to make him face repercussions for his actions. Kashani outlines a few key avenues that could be pursued by the international community in order to hold Putin and the Russian government accountable for their war crimes. According to Kashani, quote, the International Court of Justice, ICJ, rules on disputes between states but cannot prosecute individuals. Ukraine has begun a case against Russia. If the ICJ ruled against Russia, the UN Security Council, UNSC, would be responsible for enforcing that. But Russia, one of the Council's five permanent members, could veto any proposal to sanction it. The International Criminal Court, ICC, investigates and prosecutes individual war crimes who are not before the courts of individual states. It's the permanent modern successor to Nuremberg, which prosecuted key Nazi leaders in 1945." These avenues of accountability for the war crimes committed in the Russian invasion of Ukraine are expanded upon in Kashani's article. Quote, the ICC's chief prosecutor, British lawyer Kareem Khan QC, believes there is reasonable basis to believe war crimes have been carried out in Ukraine. Investigators will look at past and present allegations going back as far as 2013, before Russia's annexation of Crimea from Ukraine. If there's evidence, the prosecutor will ask ICC judges to issue arrest warrants to bring individuals to trial in The Hague. However, the court doesn't have its own police force, so relies on individual states to arrest suspects. And since Russia is not a member of the court, it is unlikely to extradite any suspects." End quote. This is certainly unfortunate, but if anything, the trial of Shishimarin should give us hope that more Russian war criminals can be held accountable for their inhumane actions. Unfortunately, forcing Putin to face the consequences of his war crimes will be more difficult than Shishimarin. As is stated by Kashani, quote, it's far easier to pin a war crime on the soldier who commits it than the leader who ordered it. Hugh Williamson of Human Rights Watch, an organization with expertise in gathering evidence of war crimes and conflicts, agrees there is evidence of summary executions and other grave abuses by Russian forces. He says establishing the chain of command is very important for any future trials, including whether a leader authorized an atrocity or turned a blind eye to it. The ICC can also prosecute the offense of waging aggressive war. This is the crime of an unjustified invasion or conflict, beyond justifiable military action in self-defense. It originated at Nuremberg after the judge sent by Moscow convinced the Allies that Nazi leaders should face justice for crimes against peace. However, Professor Philippe Sands, QC, an expert on international law at University College London, says the ICC couldn't prosecute Russia's leaders for this because the country isn't a signatory to the court.
In theory, the UN Security Council could ask the ICC to investigate this offense, but again, Russia could veto this. Professor Sands wants world leaders to set up a one-off tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression in Ukraine. End quote. This tribunal should absolutely be an imperative course of action pursued by Biden and other world leaders in order to ensure that Putin faces the repercussions of his actions. Ultimately, however, regardless of whether Putin faces the consequences of his actions, he and Nicholas I both enabled war crimes to be committed, with the Russian forces in the Crimean War being responsible for the Hango Massacre and other war crimes. Putin and Nicholas I also both enabled the persecution of the Tartar Muslim population, as is indicated by Monsieur Morovalev in the Al Jazeera article titled, Is Russia Attempting to Erase Crimean Muslim Culture? Upon Putin's annexation of Crimea, the Russian government, quote, made Tartar language kindergartens bilingual, and reduced Tartar classes in public schools to two voluntary hours a week, end quote. This intense persecution is even spread by Russia's state-run media, as Morovalev notes, describing how, quote, Kremlin-controlled media stoke anti-Tartar sentiments. Some ethnic Russians accuse Tartars of plotting to massacre the pro-Moscow population that mostly voted for Crimea's return to Russia during the March 2014 referendum, end quote. This persecution by the Russian government of Tartar Muslim culture in the modern day eerily mirrors the ways in which the Russian government in the Crimean War persecuted the Tartar Muslim community very intensely. Various historical researchers have noted the parallels between Putin and Nicholas I. As Greg Meyer articulates in his WBUR.org article titled How Russia's Current War in Ukraine Echoes Its Crimean War of the 1850s, quote, Here's a widely held view of Russia's war. Russia had a more powerful army and expected a quick victory. It didn't think Western powers would intervene. Yet, a poorly planned military campaign led to a fight much tougher than expected. To be clear, we're not talking about Russia's current war in Ukraine. We're talking about Russia's war in Crimea in the 1850s. End quote. Meyer goes on to indicate how, quote, when Russia fought the Ottoman Empire in 1853, the focal point was Crimea, the very same territory Russian President Vladimir Putin seized in 2014 when he first invaded Ukraine. Clearly, the strategic importance that Crimea has had for both Putin and Nicholas I cannot be understated. Furthermore, Meyer draws upon the research conducted by Professor Vladislav Zubak, a Russian historian at the London School of Economics. Zubak, as recounted by Meyer, quote, notes that Russia had a huge army in the 1850s, but planned poorly for the Crimean War. Very quickly after the outbreak of the war, it turned out that Russia was so weak that it couldn't even properly supply troops on its own territory, Zubak says. Much like today, where Russia 
has suffered recurring logistics failures since invading Ukraine in February. Nicholas I also thought Western powers would not interfere with his war against the Ottoman Empire, which he called the sick man of Europe. He was stunned when Britain and France joined the fight against Russia. He could not imagine that the leading powers of Europe would turn against him, Zubak says. He definitely provoked the Crimean War by his arrogance, by his wrong assumptions about Europe and other powers. And he essentially blundered his way into this war. Britain and France aren't fighting in the current war, but recently, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and French President Emmanuel Macron were among five European leaders who took trains to Kiev and stood side by side in solidarity with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Putin did not believe that the Europeans and the United States would together push back against what Russia was doing, says Angela Stenta. Russia expert at Georgetown University. She's met many times with Putin during his more than two decades in power and is the author of Putin's World. He also didn't believe that Europe and the United States would agree on these very tough sanctions. So he was wrong on a number of counts, she adds. End quote. The arrogance of both Putin and Nicholas I led them to make very critical strategic errors and also to assume that they would escape facing any pushback for their actions from other influential countries around the world. When Russia lost the Crimean War, it was forced to accept terms that included it pledging, quote, not to place warships in the Black Sea where it desperately wanted to project naval power. Today, Russia is projecting naval power in the Black Sea. In an escalating crisis, some 20 Russian warships are blockading the southern coast of Ukraine, keeping the country from exporting its abundant grain to the world. I think this is again a historical continuity, says Georgetown Stent. Russia trying to dominate the Black Sea? The goals haven't changed that much, end quote. Clearly, many of the goals that Putin has sought to fulfill really have been inherited from generations of Russian leaders before him. Even Putin's domestic policies in ruling Russia mirror those of Nicholas I. As is highlighted by Mark Galliotti in the European Council on Foreign Relations article titled Vladimir and Nicholas, Putinism enters a new historic phase. Putin's very tyrannical leadership style bears a great deal of similarity to that of Nicholas I. Galliotti, when describing Putin, explained how, quote, like Nicholas, he is a nationalist and a militarist, come to power at a time when a wave of regime changes in his neighborhood bring into question his own future, as well as a state system in which he believes. Like Nicholas, Vladimir sees himself as a professional and an outsider at court. Indeed, much of his legitimacy has always been dependent on this status as above and not of the elite, however true that may actually be. 
Like Nicholas, he has a deep fear of instability. He appears to realize Russia needs reform. He has been told so enough by his friend, former finance minister Alexei Kudrin, but cannot bring himself to make deep systemic changes that he knows will undermine central control, end quote. Putin is almost certainly aware of the historical similarities between his actions and those of Nicholas I. After all, as is recounted by Henry Dyer in the Business Insider article titled, Putin sees himself as the inheritor of the czars, says Trump's former Russia advisor Fiona Hill. Fiona Hill, a former national security advisor to former United States President Donald Trump on Russia, described Putin as seeing himself as the, quote, inheritor of the czars, end quote, and aptly and appropriately made the comparison between Putin and Nicholas I. According to Dyer, quote, Hill said Putin has weaponized the Russian Orthodox Church. A strategy, she said, is pulled straight out of the pages of the 1840s and 50s, when it was used by Tsar Nicholas I to create official nationality shaping and defining the nation-state around a triad of the autocracy, Russian Orthodoxy, and the people. These historical parallels between Putin and Nicholas I are important because they emphasize several key significant realizations. One such revelation is that Putin's foreign policy agenda and leadership style really encompass the same tactics that the Russian government has literally been employing for centuries. This underscores how the system of government that Russia currently has in place is one that primarily promotes those with a militaristic, tyrannical, punitive, outdated, and historically entrenched mindset. This seems to imply that the current problems with the Russian government may not end with Putin as many of his supporters and close associates such as Sergei Shoigu are fervent believers in Putin's twisted and disgusting worldview. It will require complex and fundamental reforms to the Russian government and political system in order to ensure that the Russian government leaders in the 21st century do not continue to follow the ideology that they have been devoted to since the 19th century. It may take reformers such as Alexei Navalny reforming and redefining the Russian government as we know it for there truly to be any significant change. As Meyer indicates when describing the conclusion of the Crimean War, quote, The war did, however, further damage the reputation of Nicholas I. He died in 1855, while the fighting still raged. His 30-year rule left Russia isolated, impoverished, and badly in need of reforms. Russia lost the Crimean War a year later and was forced to accept humiliating terms. End quote. One can only hope that history will repeat itself once again and that Putin's invasion of Ukraine will effectively mark the downfall of his Russian regime. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you will find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.